Well, this morning we're going to begin a study that's going to last throughout the rest of the month. As you heard earlier, it's going to be morning and night throughout the month of January. We're going to be studying the Holy Spirit. We've called it Life with the Spirit of God. Life with the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to know Him? What does it mean to understand Him? What does it mean to obey Him and to walk with Him? We're going to be diving into that with each other, and I trust that this will be something you'll be committed to coming morning and night for these next few weeks to study with us. I do need to give one caveat. Apparently, we have a few problems with our PowerPoint on the live stream. So if you're watching through live stream, we're glad you're here. Just know that uh, the outline might lag a little bit on uh, our live stream. At least it did during our, our um, first hour. And um, all of my notes are usually published outline and text and cross-references on Monday or Tuesday anyway, so you, you won't be too far behind, but we apologize about that. We are working hard to get it fixed. Let me confess and start by saying that preparation for this series has immersed me into the reality of the old proverb, that any description of God is like trying to fit the ocean into a thimble. And I, I understand that feeling. Uh, it's been a long time since I felt what I felt the last few weeks preparing for this morning. Um, I even got up very early, as is my custom this morning. Uh, you don't want to know what time, but I was up looking at my notes, and I kept thinking, yes, but, yes, but, I want to add, I want to add. And, I, and I, 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 I did add a few things, but, but, but not as much as I wanted to. And there's a reason for that. We're going to be studying the subject of pneumatology, the study of the theology of the Spirit of God, and there are not chapters or books, but volumes and encyclopedias written on this subject. And so to try to put the ocean in a thimble is an apt illustration of what it feels like for me and for the other men as we study this. Over the next month, we're going to preach on who he is and what he does and the implications of knowing that. And it's reinforced again the reality that every and any discussion of God. God's nature, God's being is by nature incomplete and insufficient. I mean, who, who am I? Who are we to think, okay, this morning we're going to take 45 minutes and do an adequate introduction to the, the Spirit of God. We won't. This will be just that, an introduction for further study. So my opening confession is that all of these studies will be introductory in nature. I trust they'll motivate you into further meditation, certainly further discussion and further reading and study as well. I'd like to begin with some words from Titus, the book of Titus, Paul's letter from his own heart to this pastor of the churches in Crete, Titus. He says, when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, this is Titus 3, verses 4 to 7. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Listen, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being saved or justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Just in those few simple verses, Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit of God regenerates the soul through faith, that the Holy Spirit renews the soul through salvation, that the Holy Spirit is poured out upon us richly by the Father through Jesus Christ, our loving Savior. 
He is a gift. He regenerates, he renews, he's ever present in the life of a believer. So what we want to do this morning is answer the simple question, who is he? Who is the Holy Spirit? Now, this is going to be more theological probably than uh, we're used to doing, but I, I can't help but encourage you to say that all theology has implications by how we think. And it might be that the most important thing you and I do when we come to the Word of God, either in church, our quiet times, in our care groups, in our studies, is that we come expecting to know truth that has changing implications on our lives. So myself and other staff members are going to lead us into this series, Life with the Spirit of God. And I'm excited to see what, what the Lord does to lead us through that. Now, serving as a, as a pastor is a precious, precious privilege. I never weary of the honor it is to serve as one of your serving shepherds here. One of the sweetest parts is coming to the aid of people when they have biblical and theological questions. Sometimes I can help. Oftentimes I find myself saying, I don't know, but I'll find out. Certain topics raise questions and different kinds of questions. Certain topics are, are just tickling the imagination and answering curiosities. For example, I've been asked this, Pastor Rick, did Adam have a belly button? I don't know. How about this? Pastor Rick, can you tell me who are the Nephilim, the giants in Genesis 6? Some people think they were men. Some people think they were demons. Some people think they were demonized men. We just know they were big and they were bad. And the flood came. How about this one? I've been asked this. Pastor Holland, does greet one another with a holy kiss condone a shortcut in the dating process? I can answer that one. No, it does not. Those are fun curiosities, and, and we can ask Bible curiosities all the day, and uh, it'll be fun to sit in heaven with the presence of God being realized in our life and, and answer those questions one by one. But there are other topics that are far more serious. These questions can keep you up at night. They can bring debilitating seasons of despair without good, solid biblical answers. And sadly, some of the most serious and potentially discouraging questions that I've been asked have to do with God himself. More specifically, the Holy Spirit and his ministry. For example, I've been asked these questions. Perhaps you've asked these questions. Am I, am I beyond hope? Meaning, have I committed the unpardonable sin of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit? Can I be forgiven? Have I done this? Or how about this? Is my salvation complete? I remember asking this as a very new convert when I was 16 years old because of some friends I had. Is my salvation complete or is it inferior? Have I experienced the baptism of the Spirit of God or the second blessing? Or why don't I speak in tongues? Or can I speak in tongues? Can you teach me how to speak in tongues? Probably one that was most troubling to me personally, I picked up from an old Maranatha worship song. I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember those, those set of albums that came out or eight-track cassettes. Cast me not away from thy presence, O Lord. Take not thy 
Some of you know, Holy Spirit from me. Great passage. It's actually a quote from Psalm 51, verse 11. Notice I didn't sing that. I just gave you the lyrics. Do not cast me away from your presence, David says, nor, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Is it possible that your relationship with the Holy Spirit is so fragile it might find an exit ramp today? No, it's not. That's talking about the leading presence of the kingship. David is saying, don't let what happened to Saul happen to me. But we'll come back to that. Here's one that we'll answer in Ephesians 4.30 in just a, a few studies. Have I grieved the Holy Spirit? And if I, if I have, is he still upset? How can I make him ungrieved or unupset the Holy Spirit? Well, all of these are based on the answers to these are based on an adequate understanding of who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. And let me just say from the very beginning, these are almost impossible to distinguish. My, my assignment from our team was to preach on who the Holy Spirit is this morning and what he does tonight. Well, you're going to hear a whole lot this morning about what he does and a whole lot tonight also about who he is, because you can't, you can't separate those who he is and what he's like, what he does are questions we ought to think about often. Regrettably and unnecessarily, the thought of the Holy Spirit has been a negative experience for far too many. In Christ's blood-bought assembly, the church, his bride, confusion, misunderstanding, anxiety, fear, even terror about the Holy Spirit have freighted way too many hearts with apprehension about the third member of the Trinity. And I think that grieves him. Add to these the basic question and confusion that comes from the generated controversy in the Christian community between charismatics and cessationists. Charismatics, which believe all the gifts of the Holy Spirit are still in play. Cessationists who believe some of them have passed away. For example, so-called charismatics can too easily claim that their cessationist brothers and sisters dismiss the work of God. That they downplay the Holy Spirit. That they disregard the Holy Spirit. That they outright ignore him and his word. And some of that caricature has some truth to it. But not all of it. On the other hand, so-called cessationists can too easily claim that their charismatic brothers and sisters focus way too much on the Holy Spirit. His gifts, his ministry, our relationship with him. And they forget other Parts of the Christian life. Now, that has some truth to it, but also is a caricature as well. Where's the truth? Where should you and I put the accent on our understanding of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God? Well, these questions uh, really have, have been in the, the tug of war of a wrestling match inside the church since the closing of the canon. They are actually engaged in the book of Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians especially. And let me say from the beginning that these sermons will be introductory and we will take deeper dives, I hope, later in care groups. There are so many good books. We'll, give, we'll provide you a, a list of resources that you can read on the Holy Spirit should you like to. But I think it will serve us well this morning to remember a few basic introductory features about the Holy Spirit. This is simply... Intro, this is 101. So let's dive into looking at three, three introductory features about the Holy 
spirit. Even saying that, I feel so a little bit shamed and humble. Like I'm going to, I'm going to talk to you about the Holy Spirit and give you three introductory features. There's a Bible full of introductory features. We're just going to isolate three and some sub points under that to help get our, grease our minds and help us think more in this series. The first introductory feature about the Holy Spirit is this. He is the person of God. He is the person of God. He is God. And we'll break this down by looking at a few subcategories under that letter A. He is a person of the Trinity. He is a person of the Trinity. Instantly with the word Trinity, we take the floaties off and go from the shallow to the deep end of the pool, theologically. This is beyond our ability to fully comprehend. I'm so thankful for theologians who've helped us think better about the Trinity, but I've seen a trend recently where people are writing books and blogs seeming to have think that they can answer the questions about the Trinity in a few pages. Impossible. Those may help our thinking, but they cannot take the mystery and the godness out of God. We are creatures looking at God without the ability to have full understanding. But he invites us to understand more, and he invites us to understand better. He's a person of the Trinity. Now, let's talk about some fundamental realities of the Trinity. This is worth a whole series, but just a few things to think about. Let's start with God himself. Deuteronomy is absolutely crystal clear about the nature of God. Deuteronomy 6.4. A lot of scripture today, by the way, you might write it down and not try to turn to all of them. Just it's going to be quite a bit. Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. So along with Israel, we're called to commit ourselves to singularity and unity of the one true God. We are monotheists. We are monotheistic. Mono, one, theistic, this word for God. We believe in one God. We believe God is one and there is one true God. But our commitment to monotheism can provoke consternation and confusion, even anxiety with the concept of the Trinity. I remember as a kid, I really do remember, singing Holy, 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 God in three persons, blessed Trinity. And just stopping and going, how does that work? What does that mean? How can we believe in one God, serve one God, and yet worship three persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Well, the historic formula for this is simple. You've heard this, I'm sure, many times before. God is one in essence, Three in person. One in essence, three in person. R.C. Sproul helps with this, I think. He says, this formula seeks to protect Christianity from serious combat on two fronts. On the one hand, the church wants to maintain its strict adherence to monotheism. Hence, the first part of the formula, God is one in essence. This means that there is only one being we call God. On the other hand, the church seeks to be faithful to the clear biblical revelation of the deity of Jesus Christ and the deity of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the church distinguishes among three persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This accounts for the second part of the formula. God is three in person, end quote. Now, what that probably does to you, as it does to me, is give me categories for thinking but it doesn't solve all my questions. 
And, and that's okay. That, that, that's okay. We, we understand God as much as his revelation will let us and we'll have the rest of eternity in heaven with him face to face to have those questions realized and to have those questions answered. For now, just know that for each person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, it's a good biblical exercise to look at each member and notice how they are revealed as God himself. Many places we can go, for example, uh, my, my favorite for the deity of Christ is 1 John 1, uh, 5.21, where it says, um, talks about the eternal God. This is him, Jesus Christ. That's wonderful attribution that Jesus is God. We can see that all of the, uh, the uh, um, uh, proofs of his deity and what he did and what he said in his life and in the epistles. The Holy Spirit, though, is easy to think of as not second, but third rank. And maybe not God himself. The best place that illustrates this in my mind so clearly is in an unexpected place. Take your Bibles and look at Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. This is as plain and as clear as it could be. And it's not even making the, the main point. It's just assuming it. Acts chapter 5 verse 1. You know this story if you've been around the church very long at all. A man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And they kept back some of the price. He kept back some of the price for himself, with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. Here's the story. They sell, Ananias and Sapphira, Sapphira sell some land. They bring some of that land to the common good of the church. But instead of saying, we sold this land and, and, and we're going to give some of it to the church, apparently they sold this land and said they were giving all of it to the church, but kept some for themselves and didn't tell the truth about it. But Peter said, verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And to keep back some of the price of the land. While it remained unsold, it, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? Stop right there. Who did, who did Peter just say the lie was against? The Holy Spirit. Now read this. You have not lied to men, but to who? To God. Thus, the Holy Spirit is God. He's not the third class God. He's not third rate God. He is God. And the Holy Spirit is included in descriptions of God himself, several places. One of my favorite that we'll come back to in the coming weeks, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, closes that epistle and he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. In other words, in his final uh, encouragement to the Corinthians to talk about God, he couldn't resist bringing all three members of the Trinity into his salutation. Peter, same issue. He's wanting to start his epistle, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered about through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ 
and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. So in giving them a greeting from God, Peter can't resist by giving the greeting from the fullness of all three members of the Trinity, the Godhead. We heard it in our baptism uh, uh, just a few minutes ago. Jesus said very, very, uh, very clearly, this is from the Lord himself. Go therefore, Matthew 28, 19, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, say it with me, and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Why didn't he just say one or two? Because they're all apart. The Holy Spirit, listen, is not a part of God. He is God. We don't believe in a tripartite God, three-parted God. We believe in a triune God, unity, one God. I want to tell you just personally how this, this doctrine used to trouble me a lot. But by God's grace and for some really good instructors, I just decided I needed to believe this and just kind of work it out. And many more years after those initial struggles, I think I understand it better, but it's still a mystery. And I don't know that there's anyone who's ever given me an explanation that absolves that mystery, except we believe in a triune God who is there for us. One in three, three in one. Well, secondly, we need to see this just grammatically. He is always referred to with personal pronouns. This is so important. It seems so mundane. The personal pronouns actually are highly theological, especially when it comes to the Spirit of God. Every pronoun reference to the Holy Spirit in the Bible is masculine, not neuter. Not masculine because that's a part of the Greek or Hebrew language. There are masculine and, and neuter uh, nuances to nouns but masculine because he is called a he. One of the great corrections that we need to all make, and we can all make this mistake, is to work on our language. When we reference the Holy Spirit, never saying the Holy Spirit is an it, but he's a he. He is a person. This text that I'm going to be cycling through now, we're going to come back to several times today and several times in the future just know that John 14, verse 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. That's the Holy Spirit. We'll look at that tonight in detail. That he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth. Two of his names are right there. Helper and the Spirit of truth. Whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him, but you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. He will be with you ever. Him, him, he, him. He's a he, not an it. John 15, 26. When the helper comes, Jesus says, whom I will send to you, the Father, that is the Spirit, send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father. He, the Holy Spirit, will testify, will talk of me. Why is that important? I was doing my research this week on... Uh, Holy Spirit, and came across this quote from a supposed, a supposed theologian, okay? This is what she said. Quote, Whichever way we choose to refer to God does not change God's nature. 
And it's the same with the Holy Spirit. Whether we choose to use he or she or it, as long as we're in full understanding that the Holy Spirit is still a person, a full and complete part of God, the errors everywhere in here, that's what matters. In other words, it doesn't matter, end quote, it doesn't matter how we view and refer to the Holy Spirit. Can I just say that's blasphemous? The Holy Spirit is not a she. The Holy Spirit is not an it. He is a member of the Godhead. And the personal pronouns matter. Now, quick, quick, quick footnote. If you make a mistake and you say it, lightning bolts will likely not fly. But let's just smile at each other and say, ah, I know know the mistake, but remember he's a he. Spirit of God is highlighted in Scripture as a person, therefore personal. I got to resist the temptation to do a lot of turning, but he's referred to some 30 times as the third person of the Trinity in the Old Testament. He's mentioned over 100 times explicitly and more than that by pronouns in the New Testament. And he's always a he. He's a person of the Godhead. Thirdly, he's disclosed with divine attributes. Now, we could spend months studying just this one point. He is disclosed, revealed. The Bible talks about him with divine attributes. Let me just give you three briefly. The Holy Spirit is omniscient. This passage we love so much. Um, he knows everything. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. God is revealed For to us, God revealed them, the things of God, through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of man except the Spirit of a man that's in him? Even the thoughts of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God. How omniscient is the Holy Spirit? He knows everything on earth. He knows every thought on earth. He knows every mind on earth. And he knows the mind of God. That's omniscient. That's knowing all Now, that's a part of his being everywhere, which means he's omnipresent. Psalm 139, you know this, you probably memorize this. David says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed and shield, you are there. There is nowhere you can go without God. The Spirit is always there. I, I told you in the past, when I first was studying this, I was reading the knowledge of the holy. And I'm embarrassed to tell you this, but this was a, this was a problem for me. I, I, I just, God's sovereignty, God's presence. I just thought, well, if he knows everything and if he is everywhere, I'm going to test that. So I was going to go out to the mailbox. I was thinking about this and, and I'm walking out the mailbox and I, and I stopped. And I said, no, I'm not going to go. He may have went, but I stopped. I'm having this 16-year-old conversation with myself about faking out God, his omniscience and his omnipresence. Ridiculous. Praise God, he is everywhere all the time. As we'll see in a moment, that's either your greatest comfort or it's your greatest nightmare, depending on your relationship with him through his the one he proclaims, the Lord Jesus. So he's omniscient, he's omnipresent. A third one, he's holy. He's holy. He's called the Holy Spirit. 
And Psalm, 1 Samuel 2, 2 says, There's no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there's no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. To call him holy is to attribute deity to him. And there are a lot more uh, attributes that we could attribute to him. But just know that he is revealed in the scriptures as having the attributes of God himself. Because, drumroll, spoiler alert, he is God himself. So, first thing we know is he is the person of God. A second feature about the Holy Spirit is he is the presence of God. He is the presence of God. Now, to understand this, we're going to break this down a little bit more and talk a little bit about um, a, a doctrine called uh, processionism, uh, which means that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. And if you read anything on the Trinity, you're going to see the, the, this doctrine called processionism. It just means that the Father and the Son are the one who send the Spirit. He proceeds from Him. We see this in our letter A, our subcategory uh, here. A, He is sent by the Father and the Son to be with believers. He is sent by the Father and the Son to be with believers. John chapter 14, verse 15, we read it earlier. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he, the Father, will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. So Jesus says, who gives the Spirit? The Father, right? That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. We'll come back to that tonight. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live. You will live also. And that day you will know that I am in the Father and you and me and I and you. He who has my commandments keeps them and the one who loves me and is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what has happened that you were going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. Listen to this. And we will come to make our abode with him. Little head start on tonight. We're going to talk about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is the incomplete doctrine. Yes, the Holy Spirit permanently abides with us, but so does the Father and so does the Son, it says right here. He who does not keep my words and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me these things I've spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance what I've said. So who sends the Holy Spirit? Jesus says the Father does. Is that the right answer? It's a good answer. It's just incomplete because in chapter 15 of John, verse 26, when the helper comes, whom I, Jesus says, whom I will send to you from the Father, is that spirit of truth who proceeds, that's our word for processionism, who proceeds from the Father will testify about me. So the Father and the Son are involved in sending the Spirit of God to us and for us. John 16, 7, I will tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Just every time I read that, I imagine these 11 disciples sitting with Jesus and he tells them, I'm going to go away and it's for you, it's for your best. It's, it's better for you that I go away. 
Who would think that Jesus was right then? Not these guys. How is it better for you that you would go away? For if I did not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you, but I go and I will send him to you. Why is that important? Because Jesus is forever the God-man. He was in Galilee or he was in Jerusalem. Holy Spirit, not being in a corporeal body is never contained by time or space. Now you say, well, is Jesus? Yes and no. He's always the God man. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you. How does that work? Because he sends his spirit. Acts chapter two, verse 33. Having been exalted to that right hand of God and received from the father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this, which you both see and hear. We'll come back to those last two words in just a moment. Three words. The third person of the Trinity then has several titles. We've heard a few of them already. He's called the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of His Son, the Spirit of Truth, the Helper or the Paraclete. And sometimes he's just called the Spirit. He is distinguished from the Father and the Son, but has co operating authority and power with them all together. It, it, it's easy for us to think, well, God the Father's first string, Jesus is second string, and the Holy Spirit plays third chair. No, no. All cooperating as a unified God himself, one so then why is the Holy Spirit called the Spirit of Jesus or the Spirit of Christ? Because Jesus was sent, excuse me, the Holy Spirit was sent by Jesus to remind the world, we just read it, of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. John chapters 14 through 16 are an absolute textbook in the Holy Spirit and pneumatology. The Lord taught the disciples that having the Holy Spirit with them was like having Jesus with him. He doesn't say, I will send you a helper. We'll see this tonight. He says, I will send you another helper, one who's been like me. He is with believers in the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, one of the things that the Holy Spirit is and one of the things that the Holy Spirit does has to do with his testifying about Jesus. I read it a moment ago, John 15, 26. When the helper comes... The paraclete, the one who comes alongside, I will send to you from the Father. That is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will testify about me. The Holy Spirit does a lot of things as we'll see tonight. One of the main things he does is he tells the soul that Jesus is true and real and the Savior. Between his resurrection and the day of Pentecost, his ascension actually, the Lord said, Behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Also, He's ever present in the life of a believer. Ever present in the life of a believer. Let's finish up what we started a minute ago. 
Where can I go from your spirit? Psalm 139.7 says, where can I flee from your presence? Then he has a conversation with himself. David does. Well, if I go to heaven, well, you're there. If I make my bed in death and Sheol and the grave, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me. The light will around me be as night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. And the light, not, the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. He is inescapable. Which again is a greatest comfort or a greatest threat depending on your relationship with him through Christ. Since the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father to be with believers, his presence is meaningful and it's consequential. We'll learn tonight, he abides with you and will be in you. We call it the permanent abiding presence of God. He's always with us. For now, just know that he, our helper, our paraclete, like Jesus, comforts, corrects, counsels, and convicts us. We also know that he's present in the world. He's present in the world. Uh, John 16, 8 says, He comes, the Holy Spirit comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. I know that you watch the news at night and think how, how bad things are getting and how bad they're going to get. Just know that they're not going to get nearly as bad as they will when the Holy Spirit's restraining presence backs his hand away from that in the tribulation period. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Speaking of that time during the tribulation. I think the best way to understand this is that it's referring to the Antichrist who will appear during the tribulation period. And during those seven years, the power and influence he will hold over the world is going to be partly due to the fact that the Holy Spirit steps back and gives him full reign. By his sovereign purposes, he does that. Now, does that mean that the Holy Spirit stops being in the world? No, no, no. Because there's going to be salvation, regeneration, sanctification during the tribulation. That can't happen without the Holy Spirit, we'll learn tonight. So he has to be there. He just stops his restraining of the full exercise of sin, which we can assume he has in effect right now. Can you imagine what that will be like? When his restraining hand is taken away? And finally, briefly, we come to a third introductory feature about the Holy Spirit. He's the power of God. This, again, dips a little bit into what he does, not just who he is. And that's okay. He is the power of God. He doesn't just give power. He is the power. Romans 8 will tell us tonight that our victory over sin is because him working in us and through us. Let's break this down. He is real, but formless. He's a spirit. He's not corporeal like Jesus, like flesh. That doesn't make him any less real. One of the head-scratching verses in the Bible, by the way, the, remember the, the, the term for spirit in the Old Testament is ruach, which is the same as breath and spirit. This is the same in the New Testament, which is uh, pneuma, which is breath and spirit. They, they, they both mean, they both have 
meanings on, on, uh, on, in each category. I, I just, I wish I could see this scene. John 20, verse 22. This is between the resurrection and the ascension. Jesus is having dinner with the disciples. <laughs> and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. What was that? I don't know, except they got a head start on Pentecost. Probably because they were going to be used in the ushering in of the ministry of the Spirit of God on Pentecost. And so Jesus pre-anoints them with their relationship with his Spirit. Luke chapter 2, 24, we read it earlier. Behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. That's the promise of the Spirit. But you are to stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. So to receive the Spirit is to receive power, to minister, to repent. John chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. This again is one of those, those scenes that when you read it like you've never read it before, you just go, huh. Now there was a man of the Pharisees, John 3 says, named Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews. He, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born again when he's old? He cannot enter a second time in his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Born of the spirit. Remember that. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit. Saved people is of the spirit. Do not be amazed that I said that to you. You must be born again. And then he gives us this illustration that's so important. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and to where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You know what he's saying? You can see the effects of the wind, but you can't see the wind does anyone here doubt that the wind exists? We live in Kansas, Missouri. Come on. The Wizard of Oz was put in this setting for a reason, right? We get wind like no one gets wind. Why do you believe in the wind? Has anyone seen the wind? No, you haven't. But you've seen the effects and the influence of the wind. That's the illustration Jesus uses about the Holy Spirit. You will not see him. He's formless. But know this real, you will see his effects and his influence. Can, can I just be friendly with you for a minute? If, if you're looking at me as a, as a saved man, as a, as, a, as a pastor, you are looking at the work of the Spirit of God. This doesn't make any sense except God. I make no sense except for his spiritual work. In my life, it's miraculous. Which leads us to our introduction for tonight. He's also supernaturally consequential. He's the power of God. He's real but formless. He's also supernaturally consequential. 
Very simply this, if the Spirit of God dwells with you, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, there are noticeable and obvious effects, consequences. Said another way, the Holy Spirit is far too powerful a being. He's the creator God for him to ever be present in your life as a believer and his presence not make a profound difference in who you are. On the day of Pentecost, the apostle Peter explained and gave comment about the source of the power these new converts had experienced. Acts 2.33, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. They saw the influence. They saw the consequential nature of a relationship with the Spirit of God. Seeing and hearing the effects of the Spirit is consequential. And we'll dive into that beginning tonight. Paul said, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We need to learn over the coming weeks how to know, worship, engage with, fellowship with the Holy Spirit of God. So I would encourage you to satisfy your appetite for these by being committed to this series. Father, grace us with better understanding of something we can't see or hear, but we see and hear his effects. Give us better understanding so that we may be better equipped and better to obey the spirit of holiness, the spirit who is holy and calls us to be the same. In Jesus' name, amen.